to the title of this talk, The Source of Our Confusion and the Way Out. <clears throat> and it's um, based on this uh, famous discourse called the Honeyball Sutta. Anyone familiar with it? Honeyball Sutta? Oh, good. <laughs> well, you will be after tonight. Um, it is in this um, great collection of discourses, the middle-length discourses, the Majima Nikaya. Majima means middle, middle-length, and Nikaya means the, the body of, of discourses, like the Samyutta Nikaya, Anguttara Nikaya, Kudanakaya, um, Nikaya. And this collection, as you've probably seen me a few times uh, bring this book in, is uh, <clears throat> a collection of 152 middle-length discourses. And this, uh, this sutta, the Honeyball Sutta, is number 18 in the 152. Uh, and uh, I'll read a little bit of the the, the backdrop because it's kind of an interesting, uh, fun backdrop to the story and then get to the teachings and uh, see how they're relevant for us in, in our practice. <clears throat> a lot of the, the discourses, particularly from this collection, there's um, a story that goes on rather than just the teaching, you know, the five this or the seven that. It's uh, it's told in a in a more um, often the the uh, the setting is the interaction between the Buddha and either one of his uh, uh, disciples or somebody who's saying, uh, well, I've heard you're a good teacher who knows something. Uh, give me uh, how could could you respond to this question? And then the teaching comes out. <clears throat> So it starts out, um, the Buddha is uh, one morning out and uh, going for alms. And after he'd wandered for, around for alms and returned, uh, he went to the great wood for the day's abiding and entered the great wood, sat down at the root of a sapling, of bilva sapling for the day's abiding. So he was all by himself. This was not, he wasn't giving a big discourse. He just said, okay, I feel like having a day to myself. You ever have that feeling? Just time out, right? So, um, coming into the great wood is this, um, uh, this uh, Brahmin uh, named Dandapani, who was a Sakyan, also from the same uh, clan, the same uh, and the same area that the Buddha was from, and who was walking and wandering for exercise, he also went to the Great Wood. And when he entered it, he saw that the Buddha was there, and exchanged greetings with him. By the way, Danda Dandapani means um, uh, what is it? Stick walking. Wait, let me see. Uh, something like 
uh, with stick in hand. That's it. Stick in hand. That was what he was known as. Because he would wander around. This, he's kind of like um, a bit full of himself. And he walks around. Let me see if I can get uh, the, yeah, the little note from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Uh, Dandapani, his name means stick in hand, was so called because he used to walk around ostentatiously with a golden walking stick, even though he was still young and healthy. Um, and according to the um, commentaries, he sided with Devadatta, who was the Buddha's cousin, who also was always trying to do the Buddha in and discredit him and take over the, uh, uh, the order, the Buddha's arch foe. Um, it says here, you know, every hero has to have an arch foe. Um, when when Devadatta tried to create a schism, and uh, and he comes along, asking in what Bhikkhu Bodhi says, asking the question in a quite arrogant and deliberately provocative manner. So you get the picture. Oh, here's the Buddha kind of swaggering in with his golden stick in his hand. And he says, uh, hmm, after he exchanged greetings with courteous and amiable talk, he stood on one side, leaning on his stick. This kind of, you get the picture. Hmm, okay, so blessed one. Uh, what does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim? Saying, Tell me your teachings, you know. Just, just show me what you got, basically. So the Buddha, very tuned into this guy's energy, says, <clears throat> Friend, I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation, with its recluses and brahmins, its princes, and its people. Such a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that brahman who abides detached from sensual desires, without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. That's his answer. Did you get that? <laughs> so, what first part is that I give a teaching that doesn't quarrel with anyone. So here's, because here's the guy trying to goad him, and he says, oh, my teaching... One uh, is a teaching where there's no quarreling. And then the second piece is, uh, it's a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that Brahman who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. Not a whole lot to go on there. So this is all he wanted to say. He didn't give him, oh, let me tell you about the first noble truth and the second noble truth. Just as that little piece. So when this was said, Dandapani the Sakyan shook his head, wagged his tongue, 
and raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. Then he departed, leaning on his stick. Kind of like, what is this guy about? I don't get it. And his furrowed brow puckered in three lines. He was completely perplexed. Let's see what the... uh, he says, yeah, an expression of frustration and bewilderment. That's what he's trying, they're trying to communicate. So then the Buddha goes back to his, um, to his order, to the Sangha, and he, um, he tells them what happened. He tells the bhikkhus uh, what had taken place, both the question and the answer. Then a certain bhikkhu asks the Buddha, uh, but venerable sir, what is the teaching that the blessed one asserts? He didn't get it either, right? Whereby one does not quarrel with anyone in the world with its gods, its maras, and its brahmins, in this generation with recluses and brahmins, its princes and peoples. And venerable sir, how is it that perceptions no more underlie that Brahman who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being? Basically, what are you talking about? So the Buddha gives, again, this terse answer. He sounds like he wasn't in a very talkative mood that day. And he says, one paragraph, Bhikkhus, as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, of the underlying tendency to aversion, of the underlying tendency to views, of the underlying tendency to doubt, of the underlying tendency to conceit, of the underlying tendency to desire for being, of the underlying tendency to ignorance. This is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Here, these unwholesome states cease without remainder. That's what he said, and having said this, he rose from his seat and went into his dwelling. He said, that's all I'm going to give you. Okay? This is it. So, he goes, and they're kind of wondering, now, one, one, one bhikkhu says, now friends, the Blessed One has risen from his seat, gone to his dwelling after giving a summary in brief without expanding the detailed meaning. Now, who will expound this in detail? Who's going to explain? What is he talking about? Right? And then they considered, oh, the venerable Mahakachana is praised by the teacher and esteemed by his wise companions in the holy life. He's capable of expounding the detailed meaning. 
meaning. Suppose we went to him and asked him the meaning of this. And Mahakachana is supposed to be the, the, um, the most gifted at explaining, at expounding and expanding on the terse statements of the Buddha. Each, there's lots of different disciples who have different gifts, and that's his particular gift. So they go to him and they say, this is what the Buddha told us. What the heck does it mean? Could you give a little more explanation? First, Mahakachana says, Friends, it's as though a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, thought that heartwood should be sought for among the branches and leaves of a great tree standing possessed of heartwood after he had passed over the root and the trunk. So it is with you, he's scolding them, venerable sirs, that you think that I should be asked about the meaning of this after you've passed the Buddha when you were face to face with him. Why didn't you ask him? It's a tough day for, for the Sangha. Uh, for knowing the, Bu- the, the Blessed One knows, seeing he sees, he's vision, he's knowledge, he's got, he's got the answers. Why didn't why did you ask him? So, they say, surely, friend, you're right, the Blessed One knows, he's everything you say, but he got up. He didn't want to hang out. Will you please tell us what he was meaning? So he says, okay, I'll tell you. Attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, friend, the bhikkhus replied. And this is what he says. Friends, when the Blessed One rose from his seat and went into his dwelling after giving a summary in brief without expounding the detailed meaning, that is, he gave this summary, um, I understand the detailed meaning of it to be as follows. And again, the summary that he gave as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man If nothing is found there to delight in, welcome, and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, resorting to rods and weapons, and these unwholesome states cease without remainder. And then he says, okay, here's a bit more elucidation. Depending on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact, and I'll just maybe slow it down. So this is the first piece. When there's an eye, organ of sight, an object that it's seeing, and a consciousness that knows what it's seeing, when those three come together, that is called contact. Right? If one of those three isn't happening, there's no contact. There's not seeing something. Me seeing that red cushion. Once there's contact, with contact as condition, there is feeling. 
feeling in this sense being an experience of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. What one feels, that one perceives. That is, I see something, that red cushion, and besides seeing it, there's the contact, and there's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's also perception. Oh, that is a red, strange, whatever it is called, cushion. Kind of a very unusual cushion. Uh, but it's interesting. Now it's got my attention. Oh, there's that red cushion. Okay, That's perception, where you name what it is. Oh, this is, I know what that is. It's kind of like you filed it in your memory bank. Oh, cushion, red, like, don't like, whatever. Because of perception, what one perceives, that one thinks about. That is, you see something, you name it, and then there's a thought about it. And then, what one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. That means you don't just usually have a thought. If something has grabbed your attention, it's not usually one thought. One thought gives rise to many thoughts. And this is what is called proliferation, or the word that we've used here from time to time, one of the most important words in all of the teachings, at least as far as it relates to our predicament, the word papancha, which is P-A-P-A-N-C with a little tilde over it, N-C-A, P-A-P-A-N-C-A. And the C is pronounced like a C-H. Papancha, one thought gives rise to a whole mushrooming of thoughts. And that's where things get complicated. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions, and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable cognizable through the eye. So he's saying, once you've got a response, you are off to the races. And the same, dependent on ear and sounds, Depending on no, dependent on nose and odors, dependent on tongue and flavors, body and tangibles, that's actual um, uh, tactile experience, dependent on the mind and mind objects, mind consciousness arises. And the meeting of the three is contact. With contact as a condition, there's feeling. What one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives that one thinks about, what one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. 
and what one has mentally proliferated, you start to get lost in past, future, and present just from that one sense impingement. And then he says, when there is no I, no form, or no I consciousness, it's impossible to point out the manifestation of contact. When there is no manifestation of contact, it's impossible to point out manifestation of feeling, etc., etc. And the mind doesn't proliferate. And the same with all the other sense doors. And then, because of that, when the mind does not proliferate, we don't create problems for ourselves. But he's not saying you shouldn't proliferate. He's saying that's how we're made up. And the more you can see through that mental proliferation, the less you are bound to get caught in the stories that you create. And when you're not caught in your stories, getting back to there's no need for rods and weapons of quarrels, brawls, disputes, false speech, unwholesome states, they're all gone. When you're not making up stories, things are very simple. So the whole deal is to understand how these mental proliferations work and not get caught in the stories. Just to finish out the, uh, the sutta. So then he tells them, okay, that's what I think the Buddha was saying. Then they go to the Buddha back again. They say, hey, this is what Mahakachana said. What do you think? They ask him, they, they ask him a little bit late, but um, he says, <clears throat> I would have said, Mahakachana is wise, he has great wisdom. If you had asked me the meaning of this, I would have explained it to you the same way that he's explained it. Such is the meaning of this, so you should remember it. And then, and here's where the title of the discourse comes in. With this said, the Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, says, Venerable Sir, it's just as if a man exhausted by hunger and weakness came upon a honey ball. In the course of eating it, he would find, it, find a sweet, delectable flavor. And a honey ball, by the way, is... Um, it's kind of sweet. It sounds like gulab jamun if you've ever been to have Indian sweets. A large sweet cake or a ball made of flour, ghee, molasses, honey, sugar, etc. Yum, right? <clears throat> so just as if somebody had come across a honey ball and said, Mmm, this is really good. So too, venerable sir, any able-minded bhikkhu in the course of scrutinizing with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dhamma would find satisfaction and confidence of, of mind. It's really, this is a sweet teaching. And then he says, venerable sir, Ananda asks the Buddha, what's the name of this discourse on the Dhamma? As to that, Ananda, 
You may remember the, this, this discourse on the Dhamma as the honeyball discourse. <laughs> and with that, Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Buddha's words. So, now, what does this mean for us? First, really to understand this predicament, this mechanism that the mind has of seeing something and then having a thought about it and then off to the races. Either seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, thinking. And the more you can understand this in your own mind, it's quite illuminating. When I was practicing at the Forest Refuge, and I, uh, I, I went over this particular discourse, uh, and it was fascinating to play around with it as a practice. There I'd be just kind of walking, walking, and all of a sudden the thought of somebody came to mind. And while I'm in the middle of practice, practice is a lot easier than being in daily life for me on on retreat. Once my mind kind of settles down, it doesn't wander for too long. This is a, a week or a week or two into into the retreat. Uh, it doesn't get lost for too long. But all of a sudden, I'll find myself like you know, five steps later, and I'm back in junior high. And I started seeing, as he suggests, what's implied here is to see how you ended up where you are. Let's see. Junior high. I'm here in junior high. Oh, because there was that thought about so-and-so who reminded me of so-and-so and there was that song that came into my head, and boom, there I was back in junior high. So it just kind of retraced it back, saying, oh, that's how it started. It was, it was a lot of fun to do. It's a lot of fun when there's not a whole lot of other things to do. <laughs> yeah. And there's not a whole lot of other interactions. So just trace it back and see, oh, that's, that's how it works. It's not as much fun when you get caught in the stories. You know, you can be on, uh, this happens quite commonly. Somebody uh, is there for a loving kindness meditation and uh, leading a, there's a guided loving kindness meditation and you're just not feeling it, right? And you're just, oh, this loving kindness stuff. It just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me because I'm incapable of feeling loving kindness. Obviously, I'm incapable of feeling loving kindness because I was never really loved when I was young. I was never really loved because I'm really pathetic and unworthy of love, 
or I got a bad deal in my life and wasn't surrounded by people who loved me. And you are gone. Has that ever happened to, to you? Or you're sitting there and trying to meditate and you see your mind is just everywhere and you're saying, my mind is everywhere. I am such a pathetic meditator. (laughs) Who am I fooling? I can't tame this mind. I'll never be able to tame this mind. And I was probably a whole lot better off when I didn't see what a pathetic meditator I was. So what am I doing here anyway? Oh my God, I'm stuck here on a retreat and I've got eight more days to go and I'm anywhere than where I would be right now would be better than this. This is Papancha. How you got from point A to point Z it's really a hoot if you can track it, but it's very depressing when you can't because there you are stuck in the story of being a pathetic meditator stuck on a retreat when all that's happened is the mind has wandered a bit and we've made a story about it. The ultimate for me when I think about my life, I. Uh, I've shared this, it's been quite a while since I'd shared it. When I went to high school, um, and I went to this pretty uh, rigorous high school in in New York, and um, uh, I, uh, the the teacher in chemistry gave a um, surprise quiz, and I got three out of ten right on this surprise quiz. I got a 30 on this quiz. I'd never gotten anything like below 80 or 85 before. I got a 30. And there it was, a big. (laughs) It's big all over the paper, 30. I went home. I didn't tell my parents. I remember being in bed at night, and I saw my whole life in front of me. I had dropped out of high school. (laughs) I couldn't make it. I obviously wasn't going to get a job because I dropped out of school. And I was, in my mind, I was on, I lived in New York, I was on the Bowery with a bottle of wine. (laughs) That was my lot in life. It It was as clear as day. That's where I was headed. You know, This is Papancha. And it can happen, it's happening all the time. Just as an example, I'd like you to just uh, close your eyes for a moment and just check this out. I'll say a word, or a few words, and just notice your experience. High school. Those are two words, high and school. (laughs) Notice what goes on. There was the contact. There's the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. There's the perception. There's the thought. 
And then there's thoughts about the thought. High school. Mm. High school. Mm. High school. Uh. Okay. Mm. Mom. There's the word. Response, reaction. Notice what that thought brings up. Republicans. Democrats. Climate change. Is it possible to hear the words and not have a reaction? Really hard. Try a few more. Me. Work. Money. Trouble. Kindness. Goodness. Notice how many places the mind can go in just a few moments. Is it possible to hear a word and just be with a sound? Really hard. If you like, you can open your eyes now. It's almost impossible to hear something, have a thought, and not have a response about it, and not have a story about it. It's not that that's a bad thing. It's just really interesting and mm, poignant to see that that's what the mind does. I mean, there's the Buddha talking about this 2,500 years ago, it's the same mind 
It's just, this is how it works. And if you can trace back and see, oh, there was the stimulus that gave rise to that, then you've got a fighting chance, maybe not even fighting, you've got a chance to be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke, as I say, and to have some freedom from the source of this confusion, just seeing that's how the mind works. So one, one aspect is first to understand that's what the mind does. Another is, as I was saying that I did at the Forest Refuge, and that the Buddha was suggesting trace back to where the problem started. Just see what you created in your mind and the reactions that came along with them. Another practice that I, I played around with as I, as I explored this uh, on, my, on my retreat, very simple practice, to just remind yourself to let go. It's like taking the, the sword of Manjushri. Manjushri is depicted this, this figure with this, this sharp sword that just cuts through the confusion. And notice, oh, I don't have to keep perpetuating this thought. Just let go. Cut it. Just the mind doing its thing. Let go. It's like, drop it. So, for instance, mm, let's play around a little bit more. Close your eyes for a moment. Difficult relationship. And as you just allow the natural thoughts to give rise, difficult relationship. And now, let go. Drop it. Come back to here. Good way to come back to here. Just feel your body sitting here. Feel a connection. Feel your breath. Okay. Another one. Loss. Something might come to mind with that contact. Drop it just for a moment. Let go. 
Not that it didn't happen, but just that you created in a moment that response just through that memory. It was mind created and it can be cut through, seen with the mind. Come back to your body. Not to honor what's, what, what you feel. I mean, one should honor what one feels, but see how we perpetuate our own pain through keeping on replaying things. Come back to your body. Come back to your breath. Come back to this moment. Okay, another one. The spiritual journey. Might give rise to wonderful thoughts, beautiful thoughts, or other kinds. Just let them all flower for a moment. The spiritual journey. Now let go. Just cut right through it. Come back to your body. Come back to your breath. Just realize your mind created another little papancha reality. Last one. Peace. Just notice whatever reaction is here. It might be beautiful, it might be otherwise. Peace. Now let go. Drop it. Come back to here. This is where the real peace is, not our thoughts about peace, as sweet as they might be. Right here, be in this moment as it is. You can open your eyes. There's a, a famous discourse that the Buddha had, another, the, one of the, the briefest, the shortest discourse of all that points to, to this teaching in another way. This guy, Bahia, who wanted the Buddha to give him the, uh, the teachings in the middle of alms round. He had gone a long way and finally caught up with the Buddha and he said, ah, Give me your teachings. I finally found you. And the Buddha says, I'm, I'm going on my alms round. You know, wait until I finish collecting and we eat. Then I'll, I'll give you the teachings. And the guy says, no, no, no. I want the, them right now. And the Buddha says, just, you know, just wait. I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, we'll do it in a little while. And the guy says, 
you could die or I could die. You know, I, I really want them right now. He asks them the magic third time and the Buddha gives him this response. He says, all of the teachings can be summed up in the following way. In the seeing, there is just what is seen. In the hearing, there's just what is heard. In the sensed, there's just what is sensed. In the thought, there is just the thought. That is all. Basically, he's saying, don't get lost in papancha. You see something, just be with that sight without making a whole story about it. That is all. And as the story goes, the, the guy gets enlightened right there on the spot. And fortunately for him, because a few minutes later, this, this bull gores him and he dies. Right? <laughs> so he might have had some kind of premonition. But the Buddha said, it's okay, he became a fully enlightened being, you know, he's finished with his work, you know. So it really comes down to seeing how our minds create our reality and how there's, in that seeing it, there's a freedom that comes. Noticing the expectations that we put on top of reality, the mind states that color our reality, our body feeling bright or exhausted or stressed out or anxious or worried, creating our reality. How does it work in your life? How does papancha work in your life? Think, what triggers you? What gets to you and hits that sore spot that then you get lost. And what would it be like if you could just see it? Oh, it's just the mind creating this predicament that doesn't have to be. Now, again, it's not to deny when there's loss or there's sadness or there's grief or all the things that are part of being human. It's not that you're supposed to pretend not to feel them, but to notice the extra way that we perpetuate our confusion because we're just stuck in a tape loop. That's very different than, than in a healthy way allowing all the feelings to be felt and moved through. We don't have to be stuck in that reality. We can honor it and hold it and be bigger than it in the moment that we see clearly what we're creating. So, we just, we don't have much time, but we have maybe time for a, a question or so. And maybe uh, Larry's got a question back there, or a comment all the way in the back. Here's uh, the mic. Let's see. Um, I, was, I was seeing how um, that a feeling, uh, strong feeling state would happen from mm-hmm. the word that you would say. Mm-hmm. And then from that feeling state, it, it would spawn a whole series of memories. Right. Um, but very s- 
strong feeling state first, and that seemed to gestate, you know, <clears throat> all of these. Um, and they're they're like stories. They're almost like beliefs. They it feel, felt like it went down to some decision or some something I decided mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. And um, that was interesting to me. It's like yeah, that's just what he's saying. From the feelings, which can either be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or the the emotions that that are part of the the mind state. There's a whole story, and often, if we're very attentive, we can get in touch with some core beliefs that are that are creating our reality. Right. A lot of times, when I'm working with people, and I can see that there's a particular core belief that if that can be unsnagged, seeing, oh, that's what's running the show, there's an incredible possibility of freedom. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah your best. Thanks, Allison. Over here. Hi. Hi. So this is where East meets West in terms of self-awareness and the process of uh, unraveling our regressions, our projections, our whole concepts of getting to the beliefs, but Mm -hmm. from the Buddhist framework. Is awareness enough to break the core belief, or is it, in fact, a practice required following that insight? And when you say a pra- is a practice required, like what well, do you have in mind? Within a Western paradigm, you might uh, uh, discover a core belief through that process of tracing and self awareness, and then you might do a hypnosis or an NLP mm-hmm. or a variety of te- mm-hmm. m- mental technologies, if you will. <clears throat> but in the Eastern practice, in the in the Buddhist practice, I'm curious as to. Mm. Is awareness enough, mm-hmm. or is there something then that's, that you would practice in order to uh, take the charge out mm-hmm. of that belief? Mm-hmm. I see. Um, sometimes awareness can be enough. It can be, particularly if you have trained enough to just see, oh, there's the mind doing its thing, and you, and you at some point see the emptiness of the thoughts. But often awareness isn't enough. For instance, you can see the thoughts and still and see that you're creating this and get frustrated over the fact that you're creating it. At that point, in addition to just simply seeing, compassion is important. Loving kindness is important. Loving kindness towards self and others is important. All kinds of practices. I take all the help I can get. And so there's, there's not any one prescription that says, this is, what, this is what one needs to do. But there are a variety of supportive practices. That was one of the gifts of the Buddha, that he was a master at all the different practices that could free the mind. The most liberating is understanding how the mind is creating that reality. But when the mindfulness isn't strong enough, then there are lots of other supportive practices that that help that. Checking in with a friend, like-minded friendship. 
he said, you know, having good friends is the whole of the holy life. Having a, a good guide or teacher, uh, just kind of reflecting on things, going for a walk in nature to get a little bit of space when you're when you're just too tight to see clearly. Lots of different supportive, skillful means. But what really cuts through is seeing the emptiness of, of the thoughts. So they, they all come together. Okay, and one last one, and then we'll go. So, uh, following on to what you're saying there, mm-hmm. when it's not enough to just see the thoughts, understand the thoughts, trace them back, and all of that, because uh, I've had that experience where it takes um, metta and forgiveness... What is it about the fact that it's not always enough for the mind to release? The heart has to release as well. What, can you say a little bit more about that? Why that? To me, that seemed like really the clincher for some things. Yeah. I'd say, well, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Asia, the word for mind and heart are the same, chitta, right. which... It, you know, and some some people are more on the the, the mental or cere- cerebral mode or mental mode, and some people are more on the feeling mode. When it comes down to it, they both have to work together because you can see clearly in a very mm-hmm. you know sterile way, but if the heart is tight or there's fear there in some way or mm-hmm. there's there's a contraction in some way, then that clarity will be limited. There's got to be a release of the heart as well. The Buddha talks about, it's interesting, he says in in this one discourse, not because of of, uh, virtue or because of uh, uh, wisdom or because of enjoying life. He has a whole list, do I teach, but and there's two different translations. One translation is, but the unshakable deliverance of mind, and sometimes it's translated as, but for the sure heart's release. And for some people, it's more release in the mind and then the heart follows. And for some, it's a release in the heart and then the wisdom follows. But they both have to go have to have to come together in that so thank you okay so we'll it's a little bit after so this will be very brief loving kindness and you might just play around with that this week as a practice when you see yourself getting caught in a story just to notice oh as we've said many times oh this is a story but you might Track it back to the where it started, where the papancha started, and taste that sweet honey ball, the sweet, the sweetness of seeing clearly through that story. So, um, just to get in touch with your heart, with the place that loves the truth, and wish yourself some good thoughts. May I see through my confusion. May I open to all the goodness and love inside and and share it well. May I 
awaken to my true nature and know the highest happiness. And then to share that with everyone, may all beings find happiness and peace. See through their fear and confusion and come to freedom. And may our coming here together ripple out and be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all be happy, peaceful, and free. Thank you very much for your attention. Have a great week. <clears throat> See you next week. <laughs>